Welcome. This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education, sitting here with Dr. Robert Townsend, who is my newly acquired friend from New Zealand, the University of Waikato. I just met him at ISAPA uh, over the summer in New Zealand, which he also helped run. And it was a, a terrific conference that I was able to go to and meet all types of wonderful people and get all these different perspectives. And one of the great people that I was, I was introduced to was Dr. Townsend, who his work has largely focused in uh, disability sport and coaching. And I believe this is one of his first big introductions to uh, the field of adaptive physical activity. Is that right, Dr. Townsend? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a bit of a stranger to this field, actually. Um, I'm certainly an outsider to APA, uh, but come to it through my role as the Oceania Rep for the International Federation of Adaptive Physical Activity. And also, as you say, as the head of the academic program for the International Symposium of Adaptive Activity, which was at Targo just, what, last month, two months ago? Yes, absolutely. And it, it was fantastic. And it does not seem like you are uh, new to the field. And honestly, I'm really happy to have you here because this is a adaptive physical education podcast, as the title uh, suggests. But as the year's been going on, I have been branching out to different areas of the adaptive physical activity world, uh, such as disability sports and such. But I really have, uh, you know, only I would say, briefly dabbled in uh, disability sports specifically, uh, especially somebody such as yourself that kind of works in the higher ed and theoretical uh, framework areas. I'm, I've had coaches, Paralympians, and such on, but I'm happy to have you on to kind of talk about uh, disability sport and coaching from the perspective of ableism and disability critical studies, uh, which we haven't really highlighted on this uh, show yet. So thank you for coming on. Pleasure, thanks for the call up, mate. The very first question I have for you, we kind of already briefly addressed, but I wanna know, Dr. Townsend, I know I gave you an introduction, but I want you to quickly introduce yourself, how you would introduce yourself, and also where you fit in the area of adaptive physical activity in your own words. All right, thank you, Scott. Um, what am I? I'm a senior lecturer in the uni at the University of Waikato um, in sport coaching and pedagogy. Um, I think there's actually quite a lot of connection and similarities between the field of APE and also in kind of the subfield of disability sport coaching, which is where I kind of the majority of my work sits. Um, in terms of my background, I'm a former high-performance parasport, disability sport coach. I don't know what term you like to use over in your end of the world, but we can use parasport if you like. Um, I've worked with loads of different athletes with a range of impairments from community level, working with uh, kids with quite severe impairments and high support needs through to um, elite or high-performance athletes with intellectual, physical, neurodevelopmental and sensory disorders. Um, I got my PhD in disability sport coaching at Loughborough University in the UK, which is home, um, where I worked with Professor Chris Cushion and Professor Brett Smith as my supervisors. Um, and I guess I kind of sit across social sciences, disability studies, qualitative research, um, but my specific focus is on disability sport and sport coaching. Um, I supervise a range of PhD programs uh, in disability and youth sport, athlete welfare, assistive technology, uh, coach education. Uh, and most importantly, one of the things that I do with my research program is we engage with 
the disability sports sector here in New Zealand and try and co-develop these programs to figure out where can we do research and where is it going to have the most impact? So I guess, yeah, I guess that would, that's me really. I'm just curious because could you frame yourself, I think, as a disability sports scholar, sociologist and, and, and such. And I, I, I'm curious as to when you, when you were introduced to the idea notion of adaptive physical activity. Yeah, I was um I was just going about my my merry way in uh, in New Zealand and we had a the current or the former International Federation of Adaptive Physical Activity rep for Oceania was working for the Ministry of Education. She was just super busy. And so she was thinking about doing her PhD with me to make herself even busier. Um and then said, I'm stepping down from IFAPA, would you mind taking over the Oceania rep role? And I kind of said, as we do in academia, yes, please, because I need to do more of this stuff. Um and then realized that, hang on, didn't really have much insight into APA. I have I have engaged with APA in terms of obviously when you're when you're reading around disability sport and all the intersections in between, you have to go down those rabbit holes. So um in terms of adaptive physical activity, I'm familiar, but I just never thought of myself as an adaptive physical activity researcher. Um, I guess until recently, re- really, where we some colleagues and I um from Victoria University of Wellington have, have started to dabble in. I guess in adapted physical activity and, and published uh, some work around inequities in physical activity participation for disabled children. And so I guess I'm getting there. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd firmly locate myself in, in the kind of sports sociology field with a kind of sitting across things like coaching, coach education, disability, sport. Something that's come up here, you know, and, and again, right in the title, what what is adapted physical activity? What is adapted physical education? Where does one start and where one end? And it's not super clear. So, and there's lots of there's lots of similarities, like like I say, because you know a, APE, you know the, the title of your podcast, you know is a subfield of the subfield of physical education, which is the subfield of a broader field of education. Like co- where I sit in coaching, that's that's similar. It's this sub of a sub of a sub, and a lot of the debates within physical education and adaptive physical education are stuff that you know ten years ago were being had in APE, but now it's being. Uh, had in, in sport coaching, for example, and we'll talk about it later, but how we educate coaches to work with disabled kids is something that was talked about in APE and in physical education 15, 20, 30 years ago. So there's there's a lot of porousness between those boundaries. And I, I guess we talked about this at the conference, right? Like, what? how do we def- define the field? Where does the field stop? Or is it just this porous fluid overlap between ideas? Uh, and I suspect I like to think of it more as this overlap between ideas. I agree. And I, I, I actually like that view versus having to be this this concrete thing. We can kind of interweave and, and reflect and kind of work together towards uh, these large goals and such. Um, okay, so I, and we are going to highlight one of your recent papers, uh, Infusing Disability into ed- Coach Education and Development, a Critical Review and Agenda for Change, that you and your co-authors uh, published about two years ago in the Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy Journal. And we're going to highlight it. We're going to talk about some of the topics. We're going to go off topic a little bit as well. But I found this to be a really great article where you talk about, you know, how do we combat ableism in coach education and how do we talk about disability in coach education? And yes, you're absolutely right. These are things that we are always talking about in physical education. Um, and, you know, whether even adaptive physical education should exist or if we should just be infused in every, every aspect of education and such, which maybe you have similar uh, thoughts on. So 
getting into this, what we've mostly focused on is physical education generally and, and you know, disability studies and such. But can you talk a little bit about the intersection of disability and coaching and how that's evolved over time? Uh, your paper provides a nice overview and, and review of the literature in that, that time and, and maybe some key milestones that have shaped the current state of coaching practices for disabled athletes. Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. Um, this is not a new area at all. Um, the training and selection of coaches in disability sport, parasport, was identified uh, by Professor Karen DePaul back in 1986 as a priority area for researchers to look at. Um, specifically, she argued that we should be looking at the effectiveness of coach education, um, the impact of disability-specific training and modules on coaches' knowledge, and also um, how to develop training and developmental pathways for coaches into parasport. Um, so what we often see is like this, this um, osmosis of coaches from able-bodied sport just end up in parasport, or coaches will find themselves at a club level, potentially coaching an athlete who then has this accelerated trajectory towards the Paralympics, and they take that coach with them. It's not really a, a coherent or stable developmental pathway for a coach to go through. Imagine going from a community level coach to suddenly being at Paralympics and the demands that that would put on your on your skill set. Um, in terms of the development of research, there's been some, in, so since 1986, there has been like a smattering of stuff around coaching, particularly from sports psychologists. Um, but then more recently, I'd say in the last 10 years from some coaching researchers, uh, but it's an area that's largely untapped. The research that is out there, and when I was doing this for my, for my PhD, I, I found that a lot of the research was quite generalized and quite descriptive, just highlighting what it's like to coach in disability sport at the same time whilst trying to reassure everyone that it's not as different as you might think. Probably since 2012, there's been a more concerted focus and heightened interest in Paralympic sport, certainly. I think that's been reflected in the research um, that we've seen. Um, so there's certainly been more serious interest since 2012 from sports researchers more generally, and that's then naturally spilled over into coaching. The majority of the research now is focusing on elite populations, understandably, because that brings with it the most kudos. Um, and then there's also a strong focus on understanding how parasport coaches develop their knowledge, how they learn within that specific subpopulation of disability. And this is something that I've kind of had a bit of a gripe with, particularly in coaching researchers tend to do all of these sideways studies about how do coaches learn in youth sport? How do coaches learn in youth women's sport? How do coaches learn in under 15 sport? How do coaches learn in adult sport? And then eventually that spills over into disability. How do coaches learn in disability sport? Well, the answer is they learn the same pretty much, but what they're learning is actually quite different. So um, that's where we're at in terms of the, the coaching research. And now we've got this more, there's a really strong focus on parasport research in Canada. They get a lot of funding for that um, and they're doing some good stuff. Um, and then we're seeing a, a bit more of an interest now in things like ableism and disablism and how those things circulate um, within coaching contexts. And that's kind of where I sit as well as a focus on coach education. Lots of big information in there. And I, I want to kind of unpack a few things that you said. So first off for our listeners, because uh, we do have a big kind of array of people that listen uh, I'll, I'll briefly kind of say what I view ableism as, and maybe you can provide some context too if I missed anything. Or, and ableism is something that a lot of your work is combating. And when we say ableism, we're talking about uh, systematic uh, oppression, 
that happens consciously and uh, subconsciously to disabled folk um, that basically marginalizes and oppresses them. And we see it in all kinds of forms and at all levels. Is that basically uh, a good definition? Yeah, mate, that's the that's the impact of ableism. I would say ableism itself, it's just the default understanding that humans are able-bodied. That's that's ableism. And then judging judging everyone by those able-bodied standards. So um yeah, I guess a more academic definition would be something like the imposition of able-bodied ideals on disabled people, and then judging them in accordance with those, and then providing services based on able-bodied ideals that disabled people have to fit into. And that's where it impacts on their psychosocial well-being, psycho-emotional well-being, their social barriers that they face every day. So that's where the oppression aspect comes in. But yeah, it's just the default understanding that humans are able-bodied. And so there's no uh, consideration of difference, essentially, within an ableist paradigm. And there's also a push for them to be able-bodied uh, and whatever that looks like. So everything that we do is often to push them to be that quote yeah. able-bodied. Okay, so just to give that context for our listeners, I do want to I want to push back on something or, or just kind of uh, think about it. So this actually came up at one of the keynotes during Asapa. So this context of it's not that different than what other people are doing and so on and so forth. And I, I, I completely understand that. Claudine and Cheryl said years ago in I think the 80s and her name came up quite a bit at Isapa, as you, as you saw. She said all good physical education is adapted physical education. But I, what I, and basically that idea is that all good, you know, I think you could apply that to coaching. All good coaching is whatever we want to para uh, coaching. Um, and it's often when you're thinking about considerations. I, I heard, and I've heard critiques of that saying later on down the line. And I heard that Claudine even lived to kind of critique it herself. And the idea that um, when we say, you know, it's very, very similar. And I, I do see that. Uh, but are we undermining our field in our area as well as, you know, are we positioning ourselves as something that uh, isn't really a specialty when we are? And also, are we demeaning some of our skill sets and such? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that part of that, it's a well-meaning sentiment, right? It's a well-intentioned and almost liberal or progressive view. It's almost like it's a liberal ableist view. <laughs> um, so later on, I'll talk about variants of ableism, and that might be one of them. This, you know, this idea of enlightened or liberal ableism. Um, I think it is a part of a response to the fact that disability is, is so othered in society and in service provision and educational programs. So it's a push to say, look, it's not that different. Um, in order to maintain credibility potentially you know if we're in this if we're researchers in disability sport we want to be respected by the real world quote unquote of sports researchers so we want to say things like it's not that different so i suspect part of it is a search for credibility part of it is a reassuring reassurance of other practitioners and professionals that this isn't necessarily a specialized idea you don't a specialized area you don't need to to specialize in this it's something that we should all be considering but at the same time, yeah, there are there are skill sets that are required to work in those specialized contexts. So it, it it's the same but different, isn't it? Um, it's a really good question, mate. And it's a lot of my work in coaching, and I, again, I can talk about it in a bit, is about kind of unpacking that discourse of coaching the athlete, not the disability. It's almost like 
in saying it's not that different, we're depoliticizing disability and we're bringing it closer in line to able-bodied ideals and able-bodied norms and standards. And I guess that's where it's sticky because you're then overlooking a whole heap of stuff that does oppress and marginalize disabled people in their daily lives. Yeah. And I, I don't even, I ask questions that don't have answers. So, uh, so it's just reflective things for us all to kind of think of. So why do you think it's important for all coaches to have a comprehensive understanding of disability and how it impacts an athlete's experiences in sport? Yeah. One of my fundamental starting points really in when I started doing research in this area is that I think that, uh, and I remember I was sitting down opposite Brett Smith and he said to me, you know, your first paper, you need to tell, you need to write a paper on why models of disability matter for coaches. And I remember thinking at the time, I've never heard of models of disability. I don't know what that is. And so I, I went into the research and, and, and basically I've come, come around to the fact that people don't actually understand what they mean when they talk about disability. There's no, there's never any consensus on what disability actually is. And that's confounded by different terminologies. You say people with disabilities, I say disabled people. Some people won't use those terms. I'll just say people with impairments. And so for me, understanding disability has implications for anyone who's interested in inclusive practice um, because these understandings, they influence your interactions with disabled people. They influence how you speak about disability, the way that we write programs and training, the way that we, we write policy and service provision. Um, how we might structure a session or a lesson, um, and then also how we educate professionals like uh, teachers, coaches, practitioners. So those understandings are implicitly embedded in all of those things. Now, when you say to me, why is it important for coaches to have a comprehensive understanding of disability? If by disability you're, you mean impairment, well, it goes without saying that if you're working with an athlete, you need to have a decent understanding of their function, their capabilities, their impairment effects. Um, and there's no doubt that having a good understanding of those impairment effects is really important in terms of your planning, your communication, your practice design, your recovery and training cycles, team dynamics, social cohesion, motivation, et cetera, all the fun stuff associated with working with athletes. But the issue is when coaches and teachers rely on impairment-specific information as um, to basically prescribe how you should work with those people. Um, which is what we sometimes see in coach education and training programs that are related to disability. I also want to go back because I missed something you said earlier. You, um, you asked me about key milestones or developments in uh, that have shaped the current state of coaching practice. Um, I wanted to make a point because it, it's really hard to say we don't have much information on, on um, much demographic or contextual information on what it's like to actually coach in disability sport. And disability, disability sport is often branded as, as this one context that you you move from the real world, quote unquote, of able-bodied sport into disability sport. But actually disability intersects with this whole range of participation opportunities from physical education through to grassroots sport, community sport, developmental sport, and then even high performance. And so disability doesn't actually just refer to one group. It refers to a whole range of people who play at different levels. And so when it comes to coaching, we actually have a really incomplete picture of what it's like to coach across that whole pathway in the dis in, in disability sport. For example, we have very little information about coaching disabled children um, or coaching athletes with high support needs um, or coaching in segregated like Special Olympics contexts or integrated contexts like unified contexts. 
or in disability. We actually we don't have very we have very little information about what it's like to coach bocce or bocce, for example, or wheelchair basketball or wheelchair rugby. So, yeah. So that, in terms of milestones that have shaped coaching, it's really hard to say because we're still really in the infancy of research. Um, sorry, mate. Bit of a bit of a tangent. And just ask, and, that, and we're going to talk a little bit more about your paper too, and some of the main concepts that you're, you you uh, discussed in that. I have a quick question about you know the coaching aspect, and I, I wonder because you know I and again I not not in coaching, but I I often conceive of uh, you know like an X's and O's versus a players coach, right? Those are kind of like the two types of coaches, right? And I wonder, just, I'm just wondering a lot of like, when you encounter coaches that are talking to you about disability and such, um, are they often more interested in learning about developing relationships or are they more interested in learning specific skills or tactics related to, um, you know, X, X sport, whatever it might be? Yeah, that yeah, it's a great question. That that depends to change depending on the level of experience that that coach has. Yeah. So Paralympic coaches, for example, who are often looking for that kind of marginal gain or that winning edge, they might be more interested um, in the relational aspect of coaching. So how can we get the best out of our athlete? How can we develop a uh, motivational climate that's going to be conducive to to winning? Or they might be searching for that extra um, physiological edge that might enable their athlete to perform in heat, for example. Or like, so Tokyo, a lot of the preparations for certainly the more developed Western Paralympic um, teams was how do we ensure our athletes, for example, spinal cord injured athletes who have might have an adverse reaction to training and, and competing in heat. A lot of the focus for researchers, physiologists, coaches was how can we ensure our athletes are well prepared for training and playing in heat. Whereas if you go... All the way to the other end of the of the content of the participation pathway, you've got coaches who are they understand that being um, they understand that coaching is important in disability sport. They understand the importance of providing opportunities for disabled people, but they just completely lack confidence, competence, awareness, knowledge of how to do it. And they what we, what we tend to see is coaches have a fear of the unknown. They they don't know what they don't know, and they think that disability is often too hard and something that um, they don't want to get involved in. And that's certainly my experience as a as a unconfident newer coach at the community at the community level where you tend to encounter athletes who are generally high support needs um, and they don't often don't fit your pre-existing model of what sport should look like. And so that whole model has to change and you have to change your planning, your communication style, your practice design. So what we see from coaches in that particular domain is a real need for like uh, again, quote unquote, tips and tricks. What should I do with these athletes? Um, basically expanding your toolbox of stuff to do with those athletes. Um, what what we might call, I, I tend to call the adaptive practice repertoire, which is a bit of a poncy term. Um, but basically, yeah, this, the range of stuff that you should do with those athletes, games, activities, drills um, to suit them. Whereas at the more specialized level, you're looking for more of those kind of, yeah, I guess, marginal gains and what's going to truly impact on performance rather than developing relationships with, with the athletes. Yeah. Quite interesting. I, 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 working with teachers and such, 
Um, we often also get kind of a big range of what they're asking us. And sometimes it is much more about, you know, understanding the disability, understanding how I develop a meaningful relationship. And sometimes it's much more tips and tricks, which is pretty common really that they want sometimes a quick solution, uh, some, you know, to, to, to the things that they're encountering. So in your paper, you discuss kind of two umbrella approaches to uh, teaching about disability coaching in the coaching education world. And those are the categorical approach and the infusion approach. And I'm going to let you define those and discuss kind of the pros, cons, differences, and maybe which one you would, that you think uh, you would advocate more for. Okay. All right. Um, so that infusion paper, um, I'm really proud of it, actually. It came from some roundtable discussions at a conference in, in Tokyo a couple of years ago um, where we were kind of sitting around going, cool, we've been quite quite critical of how disability is, at, is completely absent from general coach preparation pathways. Similar story to, te to teacher education, right? Often it's a, a bolt-on module or paper that teachers might take, or it's not there at all in, in tertiary programs. So... The infusion paper basically builds on this really long-standing argument in kinesiology, physical education, sport management, that disability is often positioned separate from and external to the real focus of sport. And Karen, Karen DePore, again, was a progenitor of that framework. And she was arguing for infusion in PE and in tertiary sport programs in 1994. So again, there's nothing new under the sun here. Um, but in coaching, that's, that's the situation. That's where we're at. Disability is often absent or... Um, overlooked in general coach education certification programs. Um, many many programs make little or no mention of disability. Um, for coaches who do want to understand more about disability, they're often directed towards one-off workshops, online modules, or maybe some resources like infographics or booklets to develop their understanding and do some, some um, self-directed research. So, for my PhD, I, I kind of I did two things, but one of the things that I did in my PhD was um, I evaluated uh, an autism-specific coach education program over a period of two years. Um, the course itself, it ranged from like half a day to a full day, uh, depending on how much money the organization who bought them in had. Um, it was always broken up into, and you'll be really familiar with this, mate, it was always broken up into two, two sections. Section one of the morning was about theory which talks about the etiology of autism, what it is, what it looks like, how it impacts on their, their embodied functioning. And then uh, the afternoon section was all around um, practical coaching scenarios, the, the practice, so theory and practice. So this is what I would call um, a form of, the uh, poor use the word additive because it's added on to general preparation programs. But I kind of reconceptualized it as categorical because it's based on educating coaches based on categories of disability or categories of impairment sorry and so these courses are in terms of the pros they're actually really good in terms of raising awareness of specific impairments um, particularly in providing inexperienced coaches with some confidence boosting activities and practices and tips and tricks um, and they might have a short-term impact on awareness confidence and attitude towards working with disabled people so that's a good thing if you currently have nothing in your national sport organization related to coaching disabled people, a categorical program might be a decent first start. But there are some unintended consequences of using those kind of um, models or approaches to educating coaches. 
So I guess the key thing for me in the scenario, the practical coaching scenarios that I described that often made up half the course, I would say that over two years in about 90% of the courses that I observed and was part of, um, in those scenarios, so the scenarios would be something like you are coaching a, an autistic kid whose favorite activity is to count to 10 over and over again. How would you then coach this athlete? And so in around 90% of those courses, I witnessed able-bodied coaches taking on the role of autistic people, acting autistic in order to provide this kind of realistic, quote-unquote, experience for the other coach learners. And the thing was, it was accepted as unequivocally good and positive and providing realistic knowledge. And I, at the time, I remember I was standing, I was standing in the sports hall and we were watching a, a group of football soccer coaches going through some stuff. And one of the, he's a professional football coach, fully track suited up, right? And we're going through this scenario where one of the kids likes to count to 10. And this guy decides to take on the role of the autistic kid. And so he's running around the sports hall, lapping the sports hall, while the rest of the coaches are engaged in a kind of a, a false coaching session. And then the guy comes, runs over to me, stands next to me and starts punching me on the shoulder. And I'm just like, dude, what are you doing? Stop punching me. And then he just started saying, my cone, my cone, my cone, because apparently I was stood too close to his cone. And I was just thinking, well, one, this is a parody of autism. This is not even a what, what autism is actually like. Everyone with autism is different. There are some shared characteristics, but the way they manifest are different. So this is based on stereotypes and a parody of autism. And in what other learning environment is able-bodied people acting disabled, ethical or desi a desirable thing for us to do in terms of developing knowledge? So I think that for me is, is highly problematic. And I'm not saying that every categorical training program will do that. But as soon as you start basing knowledge, teacher knowledge, coaching knowledge on prescribing information about impairments, that's the sort of thing that you can open yourself up to. You start to prescribe how to coach based on generalized or stereotypical notions of disability. Um, and I don't think that's how we should be educating coaches. Um, it's, it's, it reproduces them as other. Um, and I think it's legitimate to question the relevance of some impairment categories to broader ped pedagogical skills like planning, instruction, communication, environment design, et cetera. Um, but those categorical approaches are probably the most common approaches that I've seen because um, it's something that coaches will often say, I need to know more about impairment. A second approach that I've seen um, and I've written about is called an inclusion approach. Um, now, these approaches tend to be uh, similar to the categorical approaches. They're one-off workshops, but they might expose coaches to ideas to help them adapt their activities um, or their practices. And they use these um, practice models like step or tree. I don't know what the USA equivalent would be, um, but they're, they're quite Eurocentric models, those two. But um, essentially, they're just acronyms to help coaches and teachers change as or adapt aspects of their sessions, like the space or the task or the equipment or the rules or the um, or the number of people in a group, for example. So they're called like differentiated uh, practice models. And these are fine. And again, they give coaches some confidence to be adaptive, um, but they promote, in my view, quite a superficial, too superficial view of inclusion. Um, one that's more closely aligned with integration, which is actually 
pre-social model, not social model. Um, and more critically, th those models don't help you to reflect on the power relations that actually exclude disabled people in the first place. So that's the second form. And then the third one that I've called for is, is infusion. And that's, again, echoing people like um, Professor Terry Rizzo and Professor Karen DePore, who argued that we need to actually infuse information about disability um, into um, the curriculum and the textbooks and the resources around coaching and teaching. And so you're moving disability from, from marginal to a normal part of coaching discourse and coaching knowledge. Uh, it basically weaves ideas about disability through general coach preparation, asking them to reflect on disability, understand disabling aspects of coaching practice, reflect on their relational behaviors, and then use impairment specific knowledge as kind of sensitizing concepts. At the moment, I don't know of any examples of, infu of an infusion framework. Um, I've recently received from, some funding from Sport New Zealand to develop a framework for inclusion, infusion. Sorry, um, And infusion itself might not work, but essentially the, the whole point is to just move disability from the margins of that discourse to the centre and make it part of normal conversation. I suppose the harm of infusion is that a number of coaches could just be turned off by coaching simply because they don't see disability as relevant or something that they're interested in or something that's um, maybe potentially too hard. Um, so the challenge for coach educators, teacher educators is to make it relevant. And that's why you need evidence-based um, and effective pedagogies in coach education and a sound theoretical understanding of disability. Sorry, mate, that was a really long-winded oh, answer. That's great. Um... Onto the infusion aspect of it, um, I, I'm actually writing something right now that kind of pushes back on it because the infusion model, what I've seen in the PE realm, is advocating for infusing concepts of disability and, and, and such throughout everyone's coursework. And there's even been some like, maybe we don't need a specific disability class if it's infused in everything. And my pushback, and now I think that's great if it can happen well, and I like textbooks, absolutely it should be included. But I do worry because I've seen it, and it's almost to that point where you talked about that, uh, that scenario for someone who's acting autistic and basically acting like ridiculous and, and just doing like just, yeah, just reinforcing stereotypes. And what I, I'm very worried about is when I hear that, and I've heard it several times, uh, and I've seen it written in some of the papers on infusion and disability, is that concept. And what I worry about is that I know that some of the people that you know even work in my department, who I think are great people, have no background in disability. They have no experience with people with disabilities. And so my, even though I think the infusion model is really great, and I think it's really idealistic, my pushback is that um, we need to have people that are trained, have experiences, and so and are critically reflecting on these practices that are infusing it into their classes and courses. Just like if someone's doing a coaching, education, professional development, and it's on, and you know, maybe there is degrees where it could be infused and touched upon, or maybe they're doing the work to infuse it and such in a critically reflective way. But I do think that. Uh, when we when we advocate for infusion without education uh, and accountability of those that are infusing it, I think that that first scenario that you're discussing 
um, is very likely to happen of, of us, you know, just, you know, and, and so that's my, and, and maybe that conflicts a little bit with what you're proposing and advocating for. No, I totally agree. It's a question of operational, right? How do we operate or how do we make it operational? Um, and so that's what this research that we're doing with Sport New Zealand is about. I would say that why are we treating disability any differently to any other category of or axis of difference? So we see any good kinesiology program infuses our, is already doing infusion around gender. It's already doing infusion around racial issues. But even with those, if you're untrained and not critically reflective, I think that we, I, and I think that that happens around those concepts. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe we just need to hold academics to higher standards then. And, you know, in terms of, you know, when I teach about gender, I, I go down rabbit holes to actually understand the issues and understand those, um, those key debates. And, and maybe it just involves, you know, changing the way we train doctoral researchers and the way that we train academic staff to ensuring that people like yourself who are experts in disability can run interdepartmental seminars where you say, look, here are some key things you need to know about disability. Here are some models of disability. You know, when, when I talk to um, when I talk to coaches and coach educators about what disability is, my first question is always, imagine you're going to tweet a definition of disability. What would you tweet? And so we, and then we go through this whole rigmarole of, well, disability is this, disability is that. And then I say, cool, well, here are two perspectives, medical and social models. And where did your definition land? And here's the pros of the social model. Here's the cons of the social model. Here's the pros of the medical model. Here's the cons of that. What does that tell you about how you understand disability? And then I talk about, like, for me, a revelation in how I understand disability. I, I used to work in a talent development center um, at Loughborough University where we used to work with a range of athletes with, as I say, physical, intellectual, sensory disorders. And these were these were players from, I don't know, 14 to 40, real range of ages and a real range of abilities. And I used to play, I used to coach and play cricket. I don't know if any of your listeners will even know what cricket, cricket is, but it's a better form of, of baseball. There you go. And um, I was running a session and I had my players in a line because I was a really good coach at the time and I love lining players up. We got them in a, we got them in a line. And I'm, I'm hitting the ball at these players to catch. And all they're doing is catching the ball and throwing it back to me. And this lad came to the front of the line. And I realized, and I, I, I knew he was in my session, I'd spoke to him before, but he got no arms. He got nothing from the elbow down. And I'm hitting balls at these players' faces for them to catch and to throw back. And immediately, I froze. because so I was looking at this player going, if I hit this ball at this kid, he's a 14-year-old kid with no arms, if I hit the ball at this kid, I'm going to kill him. What do I do? And I probably froze for maybe maybe six seconds, but it felt like about five minutes. It was just this awful experience where my heart dropped and I was like, what do I do? I eventually tapped the ball to him on the floor and it just rolled over to him. He, he squatted down, picked it up in the crook of his arm and threw it back to me with a, a look of disgust that I'll never forget. And what I didn't know, because I hadn't taken the time to get to know him, was he was wearing a padded vest. And what he used to do was just take the ball on the chest, roll with it, and then throw it back. And often he would drop it, sometimes he would catch it, but that was all part of his learning experience. And so in that moment, and in that interaction, in that practice, what was the only thing disabling him? It was me. <laughs> yeah. It was me. It was my expectations, it was my practice, it was my assumptions about him that were disabling him. 
that is a pretty powerful understanding of what disability is. It's something that we impose on people. And so I don't know how I've gone down this tangent, but I think that it's something that we need to make relevant and interesting for teacher educators. We need to make it interesting for tertiary staff, academic staff, coaches, and just those little light bulb moments where it's like, cool, if I changed a few things in that in that situation, it would have gone so differently. Yeah. Um, and that's that's for me the crux of infusion. Like, what are the key arguments, key ideas here, and how can they spark those light bulbs for kids and for athletes and for coaches? Absolutely no, and I think in your paper you make a really good argument too against the medical model. You know, not being permeating through all those other things. But um, okay, I want to just ask one or two more questions, and so one of them is. What are some of the major challenges and misconceptions that you're seeing around coaches uh, that they might encounter when working with disabled athletes or children? Uh, and then what can we do to kind of address these misconceptions? Um, yeah, yeah, good question. There's generally stigma and stereotypes associated with disability. Um, and they, those things can, like in that, in that example that I just gave, they can influence coaches' knowledge, their preconceptions, their assumptions. We also know that many coaches um, shy away from working with disabled people because of the fear of the unknown. And that's a discourse that we keep seeing in research over and over again, this fear of the unknown. But we also know that knowledge and attitudes are linked. Um, so more knowledge and exposure to coaching and disability sport will probably lead to more favorable attitudes towards inclusion. Okay, my last question then for you is, what's next on uh, Rob's, you know, research big ideas as well as where do you see the field of parasport disability sport and education going yeah um I, I've, I've been asking myself the same question for the last six months what where am i going with this what's the argument so particularly with um with the infusion stuff there's a need now to action it and as i say look i'm not i'm not militant on we have to do an infusion framework i am pretty strong on the fact that we need to do something to move disability into coach education properly. Um, so as I say, we've got some funding from Sport New Zealand, which is kind of the it's the crown entity in New Zealand for, for sport and active recreation. Um, and so we're currently exploring the potential of co-production methods for building a shared framework of disability coach education. Um, and so we're, we're year one of that. So I'm hopeful that something useful will come out of that. Um, I'm doing some really interesting funded research with some colleagues nationally in New Zealand that we're exploring the types and the variants of ableism that are evident in coaches' attitudes towards disability. Um, these might range from things like apologetic ableism, where coaches express how regrettable it is that disabled people are absent from or excluded from um, sport, but don't do anything about it. Um, things through to benevolent ableism, which is where you heap Charitable praise on disabled people for being active, but again, don't do anything to change the structures that exclude them. Um, we drew on some ideas from uh, critical race theory to develop something called disconscious ableism, which is where um, that's where coaches might have a distorted understanding of inequity. So while they might recognize that disabled people are absent from sport, they might put it down to things like choice rather than social barriers. Um, and also think something called enlightened ableism, which is where you recognize that there's a problem, um, but you continue to reproduce practices that actually marginalize disabled people. 
So we're currently writing that up for publication and we're trying to basically basically trying to expand the definition of, of ableism to show that how it can actually manifest itself day to day. Because ableism itself is quite an abstract concept. You saw that when we tried to define it at the start. It's super abstract. So we're trying to ground it in coaches' attitudes. Um, I think that focusing on paracoaches learning and education is, is going to be a really fruitful area moving forward. Um, it's also really important to keep building a, a picture of what it's like to coach in different disability contexts. And by that, I mean disabled children are woefully underrepresented in the research because researchers understandably want to do research on high profile areas like the Paralympics and not at your local community working with disabled kids. Um, we have a little bit of information about segregated contexts like Special Olympics, but often not focused on, on coaching. Uh, and again, we need more, more, we kind of need more ethnographic stuff around what it's like to coach in specific disability sport contexts and build this real picture. Um, but for me, that's those are some of the key areas that we're, or I'm trying to develop moving forward. Um, I think it's really important that we, as a field, start to promote, and this was talked about by Professor David Howe at ISAPA, we need to promote the mobility and exposure of disabled academics in our field. There's often a, and he's right, and it's hard to say this as an able-bodied academic, it, he's right in that it's, there's often an overexposure of able-bodied people talking about disability, which I think we're allowed to do and we should be doing if we do it in an informed way. But I think we should also be building pathways for the mobility and exposure of disabled academics to talk about these areas and to lead in these areas. Um, and so that's something that we'll need to continue to to think about and really think about the politics of doing disability research and doing it properly. And that's why I think that, and it's great that you're you're exploring participatory methods, co-production methods as well in your own work, because I think that those methods are really, really crucial in um, kind of collapsing the power relations between researcher and researched and ensuring that it's more of a partnership more rather than a doing to. So it's doing with rather than doing to. Does that make sense? I think a lot, yeah. And I and just capping this off for our listeners, and I think I'm going to edit the beginning too to say this because uh, you know a lot of our listeners are a lot. We have a lot of students that are in PE programs. We have a lot of in-service teachers, and we have a lot of academics that listen. And a lot of our teachers are also coaches. And I want to just like point out like how much overlap there is in all the things that we're doing as well as application um you know in what they're doing so i think that this is a tremendously helpful thing for them to listen to and reflect on and when i listen to you rob you know that's that's what i get is that we need to critically reflect on everything that we're doing and identify ways to kind of combat ableism and identify it in our day-to-day our -day life but with that um i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about all the great stuff you're doing and uh i hope to see you soon in real life again Ireland 2025. Yeah.